0: You are listening to How to Stand. For more information about the show, as well as my other podcast, Seventeen Karat Kpop, and how you can support both of them, visit seventeen Karat Kpop. Com backslash how, hyphen two hyphen Stan. HTML. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to How to Stand. I previously did an episode exploring true crime fandom and this new era of citizen sleuths, working in online forums and sometimes in person to help solve cases and propose theories. Today, we're kind of going off of that, talking about a very specific community of true crime enthusiasts. The Cooperites, as they're sometimes called. Those fascinated with the case of D.B. Cooper, the only unsolved skyjacking in U.S. commercial airline history Who this skyjacker was really quite the stuff of legend in the minds of many. And why is that? Hopefully this interview helps answer that question. So enjoy this conversation with Darren Schaefer of the Cooper Vortex podcast. You can skip ahead a minute or two if you know the basic details of the case, because I do want to give a quick summary before getting to the interview. Thanksgiving Eve, 1971, a man bought a plane ticket headed to Seattle from Portland. He asked before getting on, this is a 727, right? So he wanted to know he was on the right kind of plane. He sat on this Boeing 727 in the back with his briefcase, very unassuming. He slipped the stewardess a note. She just sort of pocketed it, but he really urged her No, You got to read this one. It's not just another person trying to hit on a stewardess. This note is urgent. So she read it. His note said, I have a bomb with me. He showed her a glimpse of it, and the hostage situation commenced. So throughout this three-hour ordeal, knowing he had a bomb in his briefcase, the stewardess and the flight crew tried to carry out every single instruction he gave them. He ordered them to bring him $200,000 in $20 bills, as well as four parachutes. Quite clever if you ask me, because they could have rigged one of the parachutes, but to have four fake parachutes on a plane? Not likely. He had them close all the window shades and ordered them to take him to Mexico City at 20 miles an hour with a max altitude of 10,000 feet. He also wanted the rear stairs to stay down, which the staff initially refused. There was some back and forth. They did leave the stairs down, but compromised with just sending him to Reno, The stewards asked him, do you have a grudge against the airline? And he said, no, I just have a grudge. After getting the parachute, at some point during the flight, they felt this pressure bump, and when they landed in Reno, he was no longer on the plane. He had jumped off. The only remaining piece of evidence was a clip-on tie. No one was injured, and no trace of D.B. Cooper was ever seen again. He actually wanted to be referred to as Dan Cooper, but there was a transcription error. D.B. Cooper was actually the name of a different criminal. Things got mixed up. Long story short, he never was D.B. Cooper, he was Dan Cooper. That was his chosen alias, but the name stuck. The story of D.B. Cooper, literally decades later, continues to enthrall people because there is so much unknown about this case. Who was he? Why did he do this? Just for the money? For the spectacle of it all? He was so polite. He didn't come across as a criminal. No one was injured. Was the bomb even real? Did he survive the jump? What happened to the cigarette butts? Why weren't they used as evidence? In what other ways was the initial investigation botched? Why was this case so hard to solve and how come it continues to be unsolved? Was the initial investigation just so botched, just way too mishandled? Did he act alone? There are so, so many questions, so few answers about who this guy was. But I have my theories, as we all do. The Super Sleuths Online have their theories, and so does Darren Schaefer. So without further ado, let's hear what he has to say. Alright, so the first question I have for you is, could you just share a bit about how you first got into this case, I know you've mentioned before on your show, the book Skyjack really piqued your interest. Can you talk about why and how that came to be?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Woodland, Washington. So the D.B. Cooper case is a very local story. Um, There's a D.B. Cooper appliances a couple miles north. There was the aerial store there that celebrated D.B. Cooper. So it was just a local thing. I was vaguely interested in it. My wife got me that book, Skyjack. And I remember being like three quarters away through that book and thinking, man, there's just so much more to this than I even realized. And I just, from there, it was like, okay, well, what's the next book? What's the next book? And at the same time, it coincided with me starting this new gig where I work completely alone. So I listened to 40 to 60 hours a week of podcasts and talk radio. I got on Apple Podcasts, and this is like 2015, 2016-ish, and I just typed in D.B. Cooper. And like 40 shows had done an episode on D.B. Cooper. And so I just started burning through them, and I found them so frustrating because... By then, I'd already read eight books on the case. and I was way more familiar with it than, you know, two hosts that were going to do one episode on this topic. It just, all these things collided at the same time, the Vortex at the same time, where I thought, you know what, I could make a podcast that I want to listen to. Because I wanted to listen to long-form interviews with the people who were writing these books, with the people arguing online all day.
0: For people who are listening to this, who are new to the Cooper Vortex, are there certain episodes you highly recommend they check out first? Are there certain ones, certain interviews that are were extra interesting for you?
1: There are a couple. The first episode you should listen to is probably just the first one. It's a banger. Uh, <laughs> Bruce Smith, he is quite the character. He's been on the show many times. Um, I absolutely love the guy. I see him as a mentor. He's awesome. He's got wild takes on things. Also, I did these two interviews in three different episodes because one was so long with Tim Collins, who is a proponent of Dwayne Webber. I had pretty much dismissed Dwayne Weber as a suspect. And then I sat across the table from Tim and he showed me everything he has and everything he told me, everything he believes. And it just really brought Dwayne back as a suspect for me. And there are some longtime people in the Vortex who feel the exact same way.
0: Do you feel like the podcast has actually made you less certain about who D.B. Cooper is? Because you have all the time, like, you're interviewing people who think it's a different suspect. Or has it kind of clarified for you more?
1: No, I, I think it's totally clouded my mind, Hope. <laughs> um, I, when I first got into this, you know, I read Skyjack and then Into the Blast. Both sort of frame Kenny Christensen as the Skyjacker. And so, okay, I've read two books on this topic, that's two more than you, and I know that it's Kenny Christensen. That was sort of my attitude. And then the third book I read was Bruce Smith's uh D.B. Cooper and the FBI. And when I read that, I was like, wow, it's not Kenny Christensen. But now I don't know who it is. Even doing interviews, there's a D.B. Cooper suspect that is transgender, Barb Dayton. And I read that book and I had this perception in my mind that the authors of this book were just sort of trying to cash in on a local story. I just, that's what I assumed the foremans were. And I actually did that interview at their home. I pulled into their driveway. I'd never met them. I knew nothing about them aside from what I read in their book. And I knocked on the door and they let me right into the kitchen and they couldn't have been any nicer. And my perception on them was totally wrong. I think what I really learned from talking to them, and it was one of my first few interviews, but I learned that they are not lying. The foremans are telling the truth. They're telling me a story that their friend that they loved told them. And that's what it is for a lot of of people in here. I had Lisa Story on the show and her uncle is Walter Recca, who is a D.B. Cooper suspect. And I saw someone online, you know, attack her credibility. And it really, really pissed me off because I've met her. I've hung out with her. I've had dinner with her. And she is so kind and so honest, great person. And She's telling the truth. She's mm-hmm. relaying this story that she's been told. It's not because she's a liar or she's trying to mislead someone or she's trying to cash in on this big story. She's telling the truth. Hope if your grandpa told you on his deathbed that he actually wrote all those songs for Jimi Hendrix, wouldn't you believe him?
0: Yeah, probably. Because you love him.
1: He's yeah. telling the truth.
0: Yeah. I was just thinking about that. The person who said I'm I'm Dan Cooper on his deathbed. Dwayne Weber. Yeah. That's so interesting because it does seem like I think the the quickest judgment to make is that someone who says, I know who D V Cooper is is trying to cash in or show off or something like that. But it feels like a lot of the people who have and I'm sure that's you know, some people claim that were, you know, in it for the wrong reasons, but it does seem like a lot of suspects or people who think they know the suspect really, really, really genuinely feel the need to Prove their truth.
1: Right, because in the scenario I gave you, either your grandfather on his deathbed is lying to your face, or you have to prove that he was correct.
0: Something about this uh, that I think leads people to be so invested in it is because it feels like it's one of those cases that's. I don't know if Jenga's the right puzzle analogy, but some sort of puzzle analogy for this. It feels like one of those games. You solve one puzzle, maybe a crossword's a better example, but you solve one part of it and then you realize, no, wait, that just pushed out the other part of it. That doesn't work anymore. And then you theorize, oh, I think that's the suspect or that's how it went down. But then you're like, but wait, what about this? And uh, that's just how I've tried to understand. But what is your thought process about why this case has gripped so many people for so many decades?
1: I think part of it is just because it is such an amazing story. You have this charming, polite, well-dressed skyjacker who puts on sunglasses. The stewardess is lighting his cigarettes for him. He's drinking. And then he jumps out of the plane with the money, never to be seen again. And it's cool. He didn't stab anyone. Nobody was physically harmed. He can be looked at as sort of, you know, the cool robber. Or sort of a James Bond or anti-hero type. That definitely helps the case out. You know, it's not like he's the Zodiac and he murdered a bunch of people in lover's lanes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then you also have the fact that he only exists for five hours. He only exists when he gets on the plane and he jumps out of the plane. He doesn't exist anymore. We have no backstory. Uh, We have nothing else to go on from there. And so it's like you've read the most interesting book, but the last chapter is missing.
0: Yeah, because it's almost like a bunch of, you know, citizen sleuths were meant to kind of jump into action over the story because there's a lot missing that you can fill in the blanks for.
1: Yeah, and also his physical description. You know, he's like 5'10 to 6 foot. He's 165 to 185. He has sort of a swarthy or olive complexion. He has the same haircut every middle-aged man did in 1971. (laughs) You can fit so many different people to that profile. And then, you know, oh, well, he drank and smoked. Well, so did every other man in 1971. He might have had military service. Well, we just finished World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam was still going on, so most men had previous <laughs> military service
0: and it also too it interesting. I just wonder if the case would have been even i don't actually know if it would be possible for him to have pulled this off today like I'm just thinking about he's such a kind of folk hero in a way because the technology at the time was like non-existent. We don't have footage of him, we don't have real pictures, we have sketches, but we have eyewitnesses and that's it. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if there could be a DB Cooper today because pretty quickly people would feel like the case was closed.
1: Yeah, we'd at the very least have, you know, 17 different videos of him in 4K.
0: Mm-hmm. Any feeling that this, that who DB Cooper is or was will ever actually be official?
1: I don't know. Back and forth on that in my mind so many times. I've thought this will never be solved. And then we have some sort of lead or clue or break, which in this case, it's always like the smallest thing ever. But then it sort of gives me a little bit of hope or somebody will reach out to me with a different suspect. And I'm so gullible that every single time it's like, wow, that is a good suspect. Okay, that's interesting. I hope it does. But here's what I have to say about that. If you've listened to my show, you've heard me say this a hundred times, but I either want it to remain unsolved or I want it solved to my satisfaction. I don't want anything in between. Yeah. Because if we find out tomorrow that it was Bob Jenkins, he was the skyjacker, but he died alone in 1989 and we don't really know anything about him. I don't get to know what happened when his boots hit the ground, why he did it, what his motivation was, what happened with the money. I I need to know all that. And the fact that 50 years has gone by, I don't know that I'm going to get all that information.
0: If somehow we were to get that kind of information, I wonder how much you think the thanks should go to citizen sleuths, the people who the public who took interest in this case and who just kept the state invested in it. You know, like I guess I'm thinking about the guy in the new Netflix show that basically became a volunteer studying the the DNA on the tie and everything feels like this case, if it's ever solved, it's almost thanks to just everyday people.
1: Well, certainly at this point, because the FBI closed their investigation in 2016.
0: Mm -hmm. It just feels like a huge part of the possibility of anyone ever being found out is thanks to people who, you know, were running the online communities and stuff.
1: Yeah, how does it get solved at this point in time? I, You know, I know a few people who are actively, like, trying to solve this case. You know, they're sort of going down avenues about particles on the tie, and if that can be traced to these certain percentages of this element in titanium. It gets crazy. I don't know. Does it get solved that way? Or, you know, Trina is going through her grandpa's stuff after he passed away and stumbles across this one box in his attic. I don't know how it gets solved. Or even if it does.
0: Yeah. With interviewing different people, and that's kind of made you maybe feel even less certain about who D.B. Cooper is, but is there any part of you just studying this case and interviewing people about it that is more certain? Like, is there any part of it now, like, you're positive at least that part happened, or you're positive this happened? Maybe you're positive that the bomb was fake, or that he survived the jump, or is there anything you are feeling very solid about?
1: Not very solid, no, cause nothing can ever be, <laughs> nothing can so. ever be hammered down in this. One thing I will say though is regarding surviving the jump, I think it's more likely than not he survived the jump. If you ask me, plus percent, he survived the jump. Uh, Marty Andrade's got a great book, Finding DB Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead. The whole book is basically about the survivability of that jump. I've talked to recreational skydivers, military, paratroopers, PJs, smoke jumpers, SEALs. That group is a very cocky group, but they all believe that it's a totally survivable jump. Basically everyone I've asked said they would be willing to duplicate it. Parachutes work. They just do. The only thing is, did he pull the ripcord? If he doesn't pull the ripcord, then obviously he's dead. People pull the ripcord. And in, in Marty's book, I'm gonna paraphrase this number Well, let's just say I'm going to make this number up because I don't remember exactly. But it's something like 93% of World War II bailouts in Europe, they survived. They hit the ground alive.
0: Well, and it sounds like he knew what he was doing. I mean, the stewardess said he put on that parachute like he had done it a million times before.
1: Exactly. How much experience do you have racing motorcycles, Hope? None. Would you plan a daring heist where your only escape was on a high-powered racing motorcycle? Heck no. <laughs> no, because you can't operate the bike.
0: Right. Well, that gets to one of the most interesting aspects of this case to me, which is the motive. What kind of statement this was meant to make. I mean, I have my own theory about it, but first I'm just curious what your thoughts are about... Because it's not. it doesn't sound like it was about the... It wasn't a suicide mission and it wasn't about a statement about the money or anything because, I mean, I guess it was, you know, significant but not a huge amount of money. What do you think the motive was?
1: I really have no idea what the motive was. You know, I'd lean towards money, but then it doesn't really appear he spent the money.
0: One of my theories was that Maybe it's just because I kind of want that answer about the motive. And so I just, you know, want it to be this suspect just because of that. But part of me was thinking, I think his name's Joe Lakish, whose daughter died in that incident. I think a few months before the D.B. Cooper case, the FBI kind of bungled a different hijacking case and his daughter died in that case. And I want to
1: say that's called November 5-8.
0: Right, that incident. And so that was just my thought that there is a motive. Maybe it's just revenge for that.
1: And that's, uh, that's what Bill Rollins believes. Yeah. Is that, you you know, Lackage performed this whole operation as sort of an FU to the FBI.
0: Do you see credibility in that? or
1: I do see credibility in that. You know, also suspects like uh, Rackstraw and McCoy, well, why would they have rare metals on their tie? There's no reason. But Joe Lackage worked at an electric factory. So he is a good suspect, but a lot of people come to the point where I think Bill Rollins is at, where you've done so much, but you can't prove it. It makes sense, but you can't prove it. There are a handful of suspects like that. I like Ted Braden. I like Wolfgang Gossett. Lackich is a good suspect. Klansnick is a good suspect. William J. Smith is a good suspect. But all those people are at this point where it's like, I've done everything I can. I've proven everything I could. I've traced his whole history, but I can't put him on that plane.
0: Do you think whoever it is, though, that it is one person that just acted totally alone?
1: I believe he acted alone, because the more people you're getting involved, the less likely it is to stay quiet, and this obviously has stayed quiet.
0: Yeah. Part of the reason I think he probably survived the jump is because there is nothing to prove what happened to him. If he didn't survive, someone would have found something, an article of clothing or something, something, but there's zero trace of him, and that's just what made me think he's still, or he was still alive.
1: Yeah, I believe he's he survived the jump. It's not the most remote wilderness in the world. There are towns in there. There's farmland, railroad tracks run through there. roads. People live there. It's not like crazy Amazon. He's going to die alone in the woods. No, he would have been found by now. There's logging operations that go on all the time there. People hunt those woods. There's been developments. If he was a no pole, I believe we would have found him or something by now. You know, he jumped with his briefcase, the money, and he was wearing a parachute and a half.
0: Do you think there's a particular reason why, why that flight? And I think it was just like a 30-minute flight anyway. Like, why that flight, that place, and that, that timing?
1: The the timing's interesting, the flight choice is interesting, especially if you look at it real closely, like all the weirdos in the Cooper community like me have done. The day before Thanksgiving, so this is pre-internet, pre-cell phones, if you have seniority in the company, you're on vacation for Thanksgiving weekend. Bruce Smith once said, it's the B team that's at the FBI, that's at the airport, it's not the long-time great employees. It also gives you a longer period of time before everyone comes back to work on Monday. And then the flight specifically. It's interesting to know that that flight crew, that was their last stop. So they would have been done for the day in Seattle. It sort of seems like Cooper knew that because he requested meals for the flight crew because he knew that they would be working longer hours. And another hilarious thing about the meals he requested... They bring meals on for the crew. And when the plane lands in Reno, Cooper is not on board. And they immediately search the plane with dogs. The dogs ate the meals for the flight crew. They didn't touch them.
0: Wow. I don't know what that represents, but that feels like it's supposed to represent something. Yeah. Yeah, so
1: he... I don't think that was a random date at all. In my book, it goes towards the fact that this was well planned out. I don't think it was something he scribbled on a cocktail napkin the night before. I think the date was chosen specifically. The flight time is interesting because in the Pacific Northwest around that time of the year, it gets dark at like four thirty five o'clock. He takes off at two fifty. Even if everything goes way better than he planned, that plane isn't taking off from Seattle until like four thirty. He wanted a nighttime jump. Mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm planning this and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, there is no way I would wait until to take off at two fifty when mm-hmm. I know I'm gonna end up jumping at night then. So I think the date was very specifically planned out. Maybe he knew more about the flight crew than we all think. But as far as date and time, I think he specifically wanted those conditions at that time.
0: Do you think, probably goes with the question about if he survived the jump, and if he did, I'm guessing you're also thinking the bomb he had was not real?
1: I don't see a reason for it to be real. I would say I'm at 95% the bomb was fake. I'll say this to you, Hope. If you and I are on a plane together and I show you a bomb, are you going to ask me to prove that it's real?
0: (laughs) Of course not.
1: No. Okay. Your bomb's real. I get it. There is also some slight danger for himself if the bomb's real.
0: Well, that's why I thought maybe it would be because it seems like this character really just wants suspense for the sake of the suspense.
1: But the bomb is described as eight red cylinders, which usually the red cylinders or road flares dynamite tends to be like brown or yellowish orange. And even the description, you know, she describes it as you know these eight red cylinders and some wires and a battery. Your typical cartoon briefcase bomb. If I really did make a bomb, I don't know. It, it would look like what bombs look like in cartoons in the 70s.
0: That makes sense. Well, actually, it seems like this guy did get some inspiration from cartoons because he got his name basically from one.
1: That was a great transition, Hope. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well done.
0: <laughs> that part to me just feels way too on the nose to be a coincidence that he's calling himself Dan Cooper.
1: I agree. It's a comic that predates the Skyjacking. He is a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot. Air Devil, There's a comic where he defuses a bomb on a commercial airliner. There's one where he's seen jumping out of an exploding airplane. There's all these tiny little coincidences. But, you know, it wasn't printed in English. And it is obscure. So if you're doing this as sort of an homage, who's going to get that joke? For it to not be an homage. It's just so direct. I was talking with my friend Ben Holland the other day and he ran into this guy who uses a fake name for things. The guy gave out his fake name and my friend was like, where did you get that name? And he was like, I, I just made it up from two different names. And my friend was like, that's my grandfather's name. And it's an obscure name. I won't say it. He was like, you know, once I heard that, he was like, now I believe that Dan Cooper was just a coincidence and not an homage to the comic book. We're not going to be able to prove that unless we can talk to Dan Cooper and ask him, like, hey, did you choose that name?
0: But in this case, more than an example of just combining two parts of different names, because the story, too, was like a copy in some ways. I think so. Yeah. I
1: don't think it tells us who the Skyjacker is. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's a road we could go down to...
0: I think it's pretty accurate, but I'm curious because you talked to a lot of people about this. The actual place they think he jumped, there's some thought that maybe a reason why he was never found is because the search was in the wrong place.
1: It could be. I mean, they've done a lot of work to determine what the drop zone was. During the flight, they were trying to monitor as many things as they could, obviously, because there was a skyjacker on board. And around 8.11 to 8.13, depending on the timestamp, which report you're looking at, but basically there was a pressure bump at that time. And so they theorized that could have been when he jumped. And so what they did is they took the exact same plane, not the same model and make, the same plane that flew that route. In 467 US, if I remember that correctly. And they flew it out over the Pacific Ocean and they pushed a 200-pound sled off the back stairs to see if it would duplicate the pressure bump the pilots felt. And they believed it did. And a lot of people worked on this, where the flight path was and where they believed the drop zone is. And that area was searched pretty thoroughly. And then later it was theorized, well, maybe the drop zone was just a little bit south, you know, towards the Washougal Basin. Some of that could have been because of where the money was found on Tina Bar. Uh, the Lewis River then sort of doesn't make sense. But I believe the drop zone is pretty accurate. In my opinion, that's probably where he jumped. But I'm totally willing to entertain an alternate drop zone. If we have the suspect and he says, you, you guys are fools, it turns out I jumped in Southern Oregon. Well, then, Okay.
0: When I was first getting into this case quite a while ago, there are so many suspects that I really didn't think were D.B. Cooper or didn't really entertain that. But I was still very fascinated just about them because there are a lot of suspects who they're like their own characters in a way. If you could pick a suspect, a common D.B. Cooper suspect, and just they get the movie treatment or they get a TV show or they get some sort of fictionalized story where they're the main character... Which suspect do you think has just a really interesting life, whether you think he's really D.B. Cooper or not? Is there one that's really, like, very bizarre?
1: I'll answer your question in a second, but first thing I want to say, 100%. One of the reasons that I started the show was because even suspects I don't think are D.B. Cooper. Robert Rackstraw, not D.B. Cooper. Richard Floyd McCoy, not D.B. Cooper. Both of them have some of the most wild, most interesting lives, and that's not exclusive to those two suspects. I mean, Ted Braden, Wolfgang Gossett, Barb Dayton, Dwayne Webber, all really interesting people. And that was something in my show, like I wanted to present a fair case for them as suspects because I want you to hear their life story in its entirety with Cooper as part of it. But even if you take the Cooper bit out, absolutely amazing. To answer your actual question, Hope, there are two movies that I would like to see made You know what? There's three. (laughs) There's three movies I would like to see made. Number one, I would like to see the Richard McCoy movie made.
0: That was on my list. Yeah.
1: He's not D.B. Cooper, but is his life wild?
0: Is he the Um, one who escaped from prison?
1: Yes. Twice. 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 They had him in custody, like in a holding to transfer him and he escapes and then they catch him. And then he's taken to a federal prison. He's in there for a while, makes a gun out of dental paste, steals a garbage truck, and then rams the garbage truck through the gates of the prison. And then somehow escapes to North Carolina. How could you escape anywhere in a garbage truck?
0: See, that's a movie right there.
1: The best part of the Richard McCoy story is he pulls off his hijacking. Not the D.B. Cooper one, but the one he actually committed. And he gets back home and his phone rings. And it's the National Guard. Hey- this hijacking just happened. We need helicopter pilots to look for him. So he then gets in a helicopter for the National Guard to look for himself. And I can't imagine the smile he had on his face
0: yeah. when he's flying
1: a helicopter around for no reason.
0: Wow. That is so a movie.
1: That's a movie. And then the second movie I would I would put together with my D.B. Cooper production company would be the Barb Dayton story. First person to get gender reassignment surgery in Washington State in 1969 two years before the skyjacking you know when she was robert dayton uh like a badass merchant marine that ended up in like a pow camp in the philippines or something like that and ends up getting out because they needed crew members for a ship wild story plus she just seemed like a really really cool person when i talked to the foremans you know and they hung out with her all the time they'd go flying together she just seemed really cool, like somebody I would have hung out with. And then the third movie all makes the Ted Braden story. He was the Mac V. Sog commando, did some wild stuff, maybe some shady stuff, but was also, you know, sort of looked out for.
0: I would have said, well, yeah, Richard, maybe Wolfgang Gossett, because of the I believe he's the one who was also like an exorcist and had some other interesting asides.
1: The only reason I won't make the Wolfgang Gossip video is, or the Wolfgang Gossip movie, is because son, he right away was like, oh, he was a terrible father. Oh. Told me some stories about him as a father where I can't really root for him anymore. Because I'm a father.
0: Another suspect who's not likable, so I don't know if I'd give him the, the movie treatment, but it would be interesting to see some sort of portrayal of Ed Edwards Especially because people have also suspected him of being the Zodiac Killer, and that opens up a whole other can of worms, because there are all these suspicions about D.B. Cooper being the Zodiac Killer, and I don't give those much credibility, but...
1: As far as requests on my show, I've maybe received, let's say, two dozen that weren't Ed Edwards, and in a period of a month and a half, I received probably four or five dozen requests to have Ed Edwards covered on the show. Wow. So I'm not sure if that was some sort of targeted campaign, but it certainly seems like it. I ended up covering him. I don't find Ed Edwards credible as a D.B. Cooper suspect at all. I don't really find him credible as a Zodiac suspect at all. But definitely a very wild story that that should be covered. There was one documentary, I want to say it was like by his son or something, but I don't think it covered D.B. Cooper. I did three different suspects that were D.B. Cooper and the Zodiac, and it just seems like one was crazier than the next.
0: Feels like D.B. Cooper and Zodiac Killer comparisons are... That was made to be a movie plot or something.
1: Yeah, and I mean, at the heart of it, Zodiac killed people while he left their expensive watch on with their wallet in their pocket, and D.B. Cooper stole stuff but didn't hurt anyone.
0: Right. Feels very different this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but about some of your in-person experiences at CooperCon, and for those who don't know, what is CooperCon like, or similar in-person events, and I'm just very curious what that whole scene is like.
1: That whole scene, for me, it's mostly that all these people that are on these internet boards and authors all get together in one place and we usually like meet at a bar or a restaurant and just hang out together in person and talk and there will be civilians <laughs> in the D.B. <laughs> Cooper world there as well the opportunity to come up to Bruce Smith or to Martin Andrade and, and ask them a question face to face and I think for some of the authors even myself included the idea that somebody actually wants to talk to you about this it feels pretty good because you know I bring it up in my house and everyone's eyes just roll right into the back of their head mm-hmm. because nobody in here wants to talk about it the conference itself is just a handful or in the years past it's just been a handful of presentations from authors or they'll have a, a debate on stage or talk about what is going on with the flight path and the tie can lead us mostly for me it's about hanging out
0: Yeah, it seems like that in the recent Netflix special. That's just what it seemed. It seemed like it's almost like just a a get-together.
1: Yeah, an awesome one.
0: Not sure exactly what my next question is about this, but I'm just curious, I guess, to hear your thoughts in general about that whole concept. You know, this is kind of what my show is all about, about fandom culture and also just enthusiasts for different things. And I guess I'm curious what you think about the D.B. Cooper enthusiasts, but also just in general, true crime enthusiasts, the things you've seen in these online communities and in-person communities that you think are very cool or, or you think are concerning or just what do you think about this trend, especially the past few years of, I don't know, armchair experts, I guess you could say.
1: I have a lot of different answers for every single part of that question. One thing I'll say is I ask this question on my show because it's something that really sticks out to me. So I know a handful of other true crime podcasters and their audience is 75% female. That's for men and women that are hosting the show. And my audience is 95% male. When I go on forum, when I'm at CooperCon, when I'm reading these books, it's all men. Hmm. There, there are a handful of gals in there, but it's the rest of the room is filled with men. And so I'm, I've been curious. Why is that? Is D.B. Cooper true crime? I would say yes, it Mm -hmm. is true crime, but there is something about the case that does not appeal to women. This is me speculating, so try not to assume I'm the most sexist person in the world. <laughs> I think there are a few reasons for that. And I think one of them is that there isn't really a victim in this crime. Was Tina Mucklow bothered by the incident? She says yes, but she's also said she's been more bothered by the attention she's gotten from this over the last 50 years okay. than what actually happened. She says immediately after the skyjacking that he was calm and polite and was quote never unfriendly to her but there is no there's no victim there's no missing child there's no woman who was raped and stabbed so there isn't anyone to necessarily feel bad for the people who ended up paying for this was an insurance company and an airline do you yes. have sympathy for either of those companies
0: No, I'm good.
1: (laughs) No, yeah, me neither. And I think the other reason that women don't really get into this is because once you start getting into this, the things that you're going to have to learn and pay attention to are aviation, (laughs) metal particles on a tie. It's not relationship-driven stuff. And I know that's like so stereotypical of me to say, but...
0: I did a a previous episode of my show about other types of true crime enthusiasts and One of the things while I was researching for that episode that I found that was just so interesting is that it seems like the majority of true crime enthusiasts are often female because there is that sense of processing your fears about the world through other people's stories. And if you can't put yourself in there, it's not serving the same psychological purpose. And so maybe it's something to do with that. It's very odd that Case doesn't have the same audience.
1: Like I said, it's not like a 60-40 split, blah, 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 it's close, you could throw the numbers away. No, everyone else I talk to, their audience in True Crime is 75% female,
0: but Mm -hmm. mine is
1: 95% male.
0: Maybe it's something to do too with the, like you said before, he's almost like a James Bond figure. They're kind of viewing him as almost like someone to envy or picture yourself as.
1: I picture myself as Cooper pulling this hijacking off. And when I watch James Bond, I assume, yeah, I'm James Bond of course.
0: Do you think since this case may never be solved, will this ever, this real interest, this enthusiasm for the case and investigating every little detail about it, do you ever see that just not being the case? Will people get bored or does it seem like this will be endless?
1: It seems like if it remains unsolved, it's going to be endless, unfortunately. I wish I could tell you otherwise. (laughs) I will say one thing that if you really want to get under my skin right away, is to accuse me of wanting the case to remain unsolved so I can continue my podcast. (laughs) That just infuriates me. I don't have any ads on my show. I don't have a Patreon. I pay $15 a month to host my show. I'm doing this because I'm interested in the topic. I've said even on this show, I want to know the answer. Yes, I would be upset to find out half the answer, but if you gave me a box and said, hey, here's half the answer to this case, and you'll never know anymore, am I going to look in it? Hell yeah, I'm going to look in it.
0: That got me thinking about a question, actually, you asked someone on your show that I've been thinking about a lot and I keep going back and forth and I can't decide how to answer it myself. If you could know one thing, would you rather know the name of who he is but nothing about the circumstances or would you rather have all the circumstances confirmed but not know the name?
1: I would rather know everything but the name. I just want to know what happened when his boots hit the ground. How is he feeling?
0: Obviously, we don't know what happened to him, but also, there isn't really anything pre-flight either. He just, like, poofed into the airport.
1: Yeah, they checked with uh, buses and taxi cab companies about suspicious passengers, but he was an average-looking dude in a business suit, so nobody noticed anything. Another theory that pops up with people new to the case is, oh, D.B. Cooper never existed and he was concocted by the flight crew. Well, the gate agent who filled out his ticket, he did not write his name on that ticket, saw him. Other people in the airport saw him, were just like, yeah, it was the guy in the business suit. He was staring out the window. They didn't think to notice him. They saw him. People on the flight saw him. He wasn't concocted.
0: Well, what would be even the end goal of that if it was like a, what, some promo for the airline or something?
1: There's two terrible theories. One is that he never jumped and he hit on the plane and then somehow just walked off in Reno. It's absolutely foolish. They searched the plane with dogs and if you've ever been in an airplane, there's not a bunch of spare room. The inside job theory that the flight crew concocted it up and he never existed and they whacked up the money... I've talked to people who worked for the airlines in the 60s and 70s, and they all say the exact same thing. It was a fantastic job, and they loved it. And they were paid well, and the benefits were great. There weren't many jobs you could have as a woman in 1969, home for the weekend. You're also looking at it through a lens that's 50 years later.
0: If you could, this is obviously so, so, so hypothetical, but if you were face-to-face and you could ask the D.B. Cooper one question and you would 100% for sure get the correct answer, the right answer, the truthful answer, what would you ask?
1: I only get one question, so I have to ask a question with a long answer. I'm going to ask him, when your boots hit the ground, what went through your mind next?
0: Yeah, that's a revealing answer. I would probably ask him, why'd you do it? Or something along the lines of, what was the angle? What happened afterwards would hopefully be what I'd find out from that.
1: But if you ask him, why'd you do it? And he said the money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See, that goes back to what you said about you only want to know the answer if it's the version of events you'd prefer.
1: I have thought about this many times. If you gave me access to a time machine and I can only use it one time, there is no question in my mind what I'm doing with that. I'm going to the Portland International Airport November 24th, 1971, and I'm buying a ticket. I'm going to sit one row in front of him, and before the plane takes off, I'm going to stand up, turn around, and I'm going to say, you're going to get away with this, bro.
0: Well, that's a movie, too, right there. (laughs) I have to make sure I ask this just because I just feel like I have to, even if it's the worst question ever, but whatever. I just have to get, you know, clear the air. Are you D.B. Cooper?
1: I'm not. (laughs) I I wish I was that cool.
0: I officially have that on the record. The person they least expect is the podcast host, so...
1: I'd love to have him on my show, though. So if he's listening to this, you can come on my show. I'll keep it to myself, your real name. I'll make whatever accommodations you like. Hit me up.
0: So before I let you go, do you want to promote your show where people can check it out? And also just anything you want to say about your other podcast that you started?
1: my show the cooper vortex it's super awesome in my unbiased opinion you can listen to it wherever you find your podcasts at and then i started another show right before i got real busy with work (laughs) my day job book of darren which uh, hopefully I'll be getting back to real soon. And then I got a couple Cooper Vortex episodes coming up that should be real good.
0: Oh, interesting. The show's not over, right? It's just kind of spreading out more when you release stuff.
1: Yeah, I tried to keep to a schedule for a while. I was trying to do one every other week, but there are only so many people in this game that can talk D.B. Cooper for over 90 minutes.
0: Awesome. Well, those are my questions for you. So thank you so much for letting me talk to you about this.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. Hope anytime.